Welcome to episode eight of the Hypnosis Nerd podcast. I'm Luke Chow, and today I'm joined by one of the moderators of the R Hypnosis community on Reddit um, for a discussion of the history of hypnosis. I decided to invite Daniel after reading one of his posts about the history of hypnosis, which investigated often repeated claims about how hypnosis dates back many millennia, and he was looking at original sources and comparing modern claims with the written record. It was very well researched, so I invited him to join. Join, Daniel. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, as an amateur hypnotist, your interest in hypnosis clearly comes from a love for the subject, rather than a profit motive. And that means you don't really suffer from the problem that many professionals have, which is that they have to manage public relations. They have to ensure that anything that they say in public about hypnosis will um, add to their legitimacy and not take away from it. So um, I appreciate that you can offer that perspective. Um, throughout this podcast, I hope to demonstrate that a critical examination of hypnosis and claims of hypnosis will boost its legitimacy rather than diminish it. So my first question is, can you tell our viewers a bit about yourself and how you became interested in doing a deep dive into hypnosis and its history? Sure. So um, I started as a recreational text hypnotist about five years ago, um, which means that I would hypnotize people for fun in chat rooms. Um, and you said in your, your previous episode about erotic hypnosis, you kind of equated um, erotic hypnosis with recreational hypnosis. So um, I just wanted to point out that recreational hypnosis is not always erotic. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of what I was doing, um, well, there's this book uh, behind me actually, but it's um, Mind Games by Masters in Houston. And uh, what they do is they kind of guide people through a spiritual or psychedelic experience mm -hmm. with hypnosis. Mm -hmm. I was kind of doing it more just fun. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was giving people maybe the sort of experience you might have from recreational drugs, but mm -hmm. in a safe and controlled way. Yep. Um, so it put me in a lot of unusual situations that I feel like a lot of professional hypnotists will never find themselves in. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm really grateful for, for learning this way. Um, I think I've got like a different perspective on it. Yes. Well, one uh, perspective that I think you'll gain doing recreational hypnosis with strangers on the internet and for free is that you can really start to play with how the mind can have a diverse number of experiences and without the consumption of any kind of psychedelic substance um, or even alcohol. So th there are certain techniques that can recreate uh, drug experiences, or um, sometimes you'll see in stage hypnosis shows, people stumbling around as though they were drunk, slurring their words as though they were drunk, because they've bought into the idea that they that they are drunk. There's a lot to do with hypnosis outside of just the standard hypnotherapy context. It sounds like you have quite a bit of experience doing that. Well, I, I have five years of experience. I know you've been doing um, consulting hypnosis far longer than that. But... Um... 
perhaps it, it'd be better to say that I have a different experience than, than most people have. Well, yes, yes. You, you certainly have more experience playing with hypnosis as opposed to taking it very seriously. Right. <laughs> well, what caused you to do a deep dive into the history of hypnosis? So um, I feel like a lot of hypnotists will learn an induction and then they feel like they're done. That's all they need to know is this one induction or maybe not even an induction and they'll just read from a script for every single session. Unfortunately, there seem to be a lot of those. Mm -hmm. um, but I have always wanted to learn more and get better. And um, part of that was just looking at the different ways that people have done this throughout history. And um, it hasn't really been very useful, but I think it's a very fascinating subject. It's been rewarding reading about it. Well, text hypnosis is a very modern invention because when I first started practicing, um, I, I think the question would come up of, can you hypnotize someone over the telephone? Can you hypnotize people remotely um, through video conferencing? And the general consensus was yes, but I mean, th there was even some debate about whether voice transmitted remotely can hypnotize someone. And more recently, um, online communities have centered, um, have de developed around text hypnosis, where it's literally that um, the hypnotist will type in the suggestions, and then the subject or client would um, read them to themselves, and people sub-vocalize when they read. So when they read inside their heads, they can hear the um, the, the words um, almost like they're spoken. And I, I assume that's how it works. Yeah, it's um, it's actually a bit more challenging than than doing it over the phone, or you know, obviously in person, because you don't have that other feedback. You don't have any of the the conventional signs of trance. So mm -hmm. you know, you can't see somebody's eyes dilate or their their breathing slow, their pulse slow. You can't hear their their tone of voice, and you have to very much rely on their words, the words mm -hmm. that they're replying to you with. Mm -hmm. So. Um, what I like to do as a text hypnotist was keep it very interactive. And as long as I kept them talking, I could use the way that they were talking to sort of gauge how far along I was. And this would be eyes open hypnosis on their part, right? Because right, they, right. they would have to keep their eyes open to read, which, um, I mean, conventionally, it's thought that if someone stays in hypnosis and their eyes are open, they're in a deeper state of hypnosis than if they have to keep their eyes closed to maintain the trance. Yeah, I, I don't know whether that's true. I mean, I'm trying to read as much as I can about the research, but there's so little research done. Mm -hmm. I hope in the future people will be looking at that. Yes, I think we'll talk about depth a bit later on, actually, or the concept yeah. of depth and what it means and how legitimate it is. Um, so my next question is that um, when you look at the historical records, when you look at early written descriptions of spiritual practices and rites and so on, we often find practices that vaguely resemble the modern practice of hypnosis. Um, but for the purposes of this discussion, where we're looking at the past to find these kinds of historical examples, let's define the term. How do we decide if a certain practice is or isn't an early example of hypnosis. Right. I mean, we can we can argue for days about what is and what is not hypnosis, and I have done that in the past. Um, but when I'm looking at history, um, you, you actually put it well in a previous podcast. You said that there is 
hypnotism, which is the practice of hypnosis. Well, the practice of hypnotizing somebody. And then there's hypnosis, which is supposed to be, even though we don't use the word that way today, it's supposed to be the, the, the experience itself. Yep. And um, I think that throughout history, you, you will see again and again the experience of hypnosis. But what I'm looking for is specifically hypnotism, like where where a person is deliberately trying to induce a mental change in another person. Mm -hmm. So um, so, for example, if you look at the the dancing plague of 1518, uh, a bunch of people in this town, I, I believe it was in France, um, but it, it was not very far away from a shrine that was dedicated to the patron saint of dancing. And so all of these people started dancing uncontrollably and nobody really knew why, but living not that far away from this shrine, this was probably in their head a lot. I mean, you could think of it as a sort of a, a not overt suggestion, but it was a suggestion, a hypnotic suggestion that kind of put them into this state hmm. that you could call hypnosis. A lot of people have. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm looking for is is where somebody did something deliberately, as mm -hmm. as opposed to that sort of thing where it just happened. I, I want to add just one little thing, which is that um, if you uh, look at um, Sufism, they have their whirling dervishes, where um, dance and trance, or dance in a trance state, um, is part of part of the practice. And um, yeah, so I'll I'll leave it at that. So. Yeah, that, that actually gets into another thing is where does meditation end and hypnosis begin? I have a thought but, about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, so um, it actually ties in with the theory that you're trying to um, elucidate about intentionality being one of the defining characteristics of hypnosis. So, okay, so, so here's how I would define it. So if a client asks me, what's the difference between meditation and hypnosis? And just like with hypnosis, different meditation practices have different teachers and different lineages and schools of thought and so on. So I'm just kind of very generally talking about meditation and very generally talking about hypnosis. Um, but uh, I'll start with the similarities. Both are inwardly, inwardly directed and both um, are relaxed states of mind. Um, but the main difference is the outside influence. In my opinion, guided meditation is basically hypnosis. Once you add guidance to meditation, you turn what is normally a practice that you do by yourself to introspect into something that's led by another person, which is hypnosis. So to, to, to me, the defining line is when you have someone else guiding your thoughts, guiding your imagination and feelings, and, and so on, that's when it becomes hypnosis. And to, to me, that means that self-hypnosis is basically meditation. Oh, yeah. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Well, there, I mean... There, there are some theories of hypnosis that posit that it's only because of the uh, social um, expectations of the hypnotist and the client and the role-playing that happens, you know, in, in certain contexts, that's what hypnosis is. That without that dynamic, there would be no hypnosis. I, I don't agree with those theories. You know, th those are more like non-state theories of hypnosis. Um, but still, there, there are, an, an argument could be made that without the outside uh, hypnotist or operator, as it used to be called, um, that it's not really hypnosis. Okay, so let's um, begin with the post on Reddit that caused me to contact you. 
In this post, you trace a few frequently repeated historical claims to original sources, such as the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and the conclusion that you made, which I'm going to quote, is, if you're going to repeat a claim about the history of hypnosis, please look up the original source. It probably doesn't say what you've been told that it does. And I want to say that that was um, in the context of historical claims, but also when it comes to scientific claims. Very often, if you look at the original paper, um, the claims made in the paper are an order of magnitude less, um, I, I, I guess, conclusive or important as what is often repeated in the popular media or even worse, disseminated through like chain emails. Um, so the, the, the title of your post was, Why Are Hypnotists So Terrible at History? And I would expand that question to, Why Are Hypnotists So Terrible at Critical Thinking and Intellectual Rigor? So did you ever get a satisfactory answer to that title question? Not from that thread. Um, it, it was kind of rhetorical. I mean, this was a few days ago. Um, but late last year, there was a study. I, I also follow the psychology subreddit. I like to keep up to date with news happening in that area. Uh, and there was a study done late last year where they looked at religious people compared to non-religious people. Um, and I think maybe what they should have done was looked at um, people with faith as opposed to people without faith. Uh, because I feel like a lot of hypnotists will not describe themselves as religious. They would say that they're more spiritual. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that, that faith is really the dividing line. But what they found was that these religious people, um, we, we tend to think that non-religious people have less patience for um, supernatural claims. And what they actually found was that religious people are more willing to accept supernatural claims. So like, for example, I, I can't remember what the study actually did, but say they, um, they, they could set up a table and they would say, okay, we have this table here and uh, you, you take like normal six-sided dice. I don't know how well that's picking up. Um, so you can roll these six-sided dice and, um, and you activate the table by saying, you know, it's a voice activated table. You say, I want to roll a six. And you roll your dice and they will all come up sixes and it's done by magnets and the dice are weighted and you know it'll all work like that and so religious people and non-religious people they they both take the same approach to this well you know i'm gonna roll the red die okay comes up six six okay obviously it's working with this one what if i try the black one what if i try the white one and they'll try like different and you know see how many sixes they can get consecutively can i start getting other numbers and the approach is kind of the same for religious and non-religious people. Hmm. But when you, when you say we have a magic table, you activate it with the magic word abracadabra, and then any of these dice rolling on the table, they'll come up six. All right, so the non-religious people approach it the same way, but the religious people, they'll roll it maybe two, three times. It keeps coming up six, that's enough. Hmm. Clearly the table is magic. They have this lower standard for a supernatural claim than a scientific claim. And I feel like a lot of the people who end up going into hypnosis kind of have this, this mindset where a supernatural claim is enough. Hmm. If you say that 
hypnosis is this spiritual experience descended to us from the ancient Egyptians, that's okay. And they're willing to accept that. Interesting. <laughs> I, I would posit two theories, and I'm not sure I'm going to keep these in the final cut because they're not that generous to my colleagues. Um, but uh, one theory is that the barrier to entry to become a hypnotherapist is much lower than to become a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist, for example, where psychologists have to get a PhD um, or at least a master's. And uh, psychiatrists are medical doctors, so they have to pass the MCAT and they have to, you know, finish medical school and go through the licensing boards and everything. Um, whereas with hypnotherapists, often a very short certification course is all that's needed. So um, the academic system weeds out bad thinkers and doesn't let them become psychologists or uh, scientists or psychiatrists, whereas um, there is little um, of a weeding out for hypnotists or hypnotherapists. And furthermore, another way to analyze it is if you follow the money um, and look for the profit motive, um, you know, if a claim is more likely to uh, make money for the person making the claim, sometimes they'll make the claim only for that reason. Um, so both, I think, come into play too. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. That's actually part of why I wanted to do this podcast is when you contacted me, I looked through your Reddit history hmm. and I saw you saying all of this stuff that I said maybe two days ago, hmm. but you were saying it 10 years ago. <laughs> it's like yep. we're completely on the same wavelength here. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Well, yeah, but the, the, the fact that um, I started my practice almost 14 years ago, um, the fact that I've been saying all of this publicly and I'm one of the busiest practitioners in my city, at the same time, I think um, demonstrates that you don't have to honestly BS people to be successful as a hypnotherapist. And it is possible to be a critical thinker, to be on the side of science, to care very much about truth. And that means often having to say no to clients if you really don't believe you can help them. So it's possible to do all of this and make a living in hypnosis at the same time. Right, um, but so many hypno hypnotists, um, consulting hypnotists do not take this approach. And um, I feel like it, it, it is beneficial, I think, in, in hypnosis, hypnotherapy, um, to, to lie to your subjects. And um, so obviously, if you, you have somebody coming in and they're nervous about being hypnotized, you can say to them, hypnosis is completely safe. And that's not true, but it mm -hmm. makes them feel at ease and it'll make the whole process go easier. Here's what I say instead of saying it's completely safe. There are risks, just like with any other practice that has an effect on others, but I am aware of what the risks are, and it is possible to practice in a risk-aware way, knowing what the risks are. That, I think, would give the average person more comfort than the idea that something's supposed to be safe and effective at the same time. Because right. even something like water can drown you, if, exactly. You know, if if it's in the wrong place. Or also there's water intoxication. You can just die from drinking water. Yep. So water <laughs> is not completely safe. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. My next question is, okay, so, so here, now we're getting into the meat of today's conversation. 
you divide the history of hypnosis into four eras. Um, so first, let's talk about humanity's first forays into hypnosis or trance states, um, which were not induced deliberately before Mesmer showed up on the scene. And in this early era, we'll find religious rituals, we'll find various forms of magic, um, and in some ways, modern practitioners of hypnosis still sometimes think like the, what I'm going to call, proto-hypnotists from this era, um, when they say things like, well, we don't know why it works, only that it does. Um, to describe practices such as past life regression or rebalancing chakras and so on. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about this era? Um, so first, anything, well, I shouldn't say anything. Um, there's this concept in, um, in computer security, you have blacklists and whitelists. The idea of a whitelist is you accept everything unless you have a reason not to. And the blacklist is the reverse. You reject everything unless you have a reason not to. Um, so blacklist this era. Uh, when, when hypnotists are telling you anything about this, it's probably not true. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you can, you can look at all these different claims. Um, a lot of hypnotists seem to be particularly fond of ancient Egypt. And I just, I looked through all these different papyruses and I just can't find any any suggestion that the ancient Egyptians were deliberately practicing hypnosis. Obviously they have some, some similar practices. Um, but I mean, I think you'll find that in any civilization that they have some practices that involve like a trance like states and hallucinations and that sort of thing that you could call hypnosis, but it was never a deliberate attempt to influence somebody else's mind. <laughs> and so, um, I feel like you get this this telephone game. Um, you know, the telephone game children will sometimes play. Um, you you whisper in the other child's ear. You know, um, the the brown dog jumped over the the gray fox, and then that child passes it on to another child who passes it on to another child, all in whispers, and it comes back around, and it's complete gibberish. And because it's supposed each to be time funny, it's right? a little corrupted. Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, it's a fun game. But I feel like this is what has happened with with history, um, particular, particularly the history of hypnosis, is that um, a little bit changes each time. Um, you mentioned the Book of the Dead earlier. Um, so E.A. Wallace Budge translated the Book of the Dead into English. And then these, um, these hardcore evangelical Christians read the Book of the Dead, but they were reading it from the attitude that anything that is not Christianity is evil. Hmm. And so, of course, they picked out all of the sentences that are about eating flesh and drinking blood and stuff like that. And they completely missed that this entire book is describing the afterlife. It is not a book of rituals that people are supposed to practice. <laughs> but then you have people citing them, and they're saying that the Egyptian Book of the Dead is about torturing people into compliance. And it's not that at all. It just one corruption of another corruption of another corruption. Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to ancient history, sleep temples often come up as well. Have yeah. you read anything about that? Like, what is it actually? Well, the impression I'm getting now, I, I am wrong about things from time to time. But from everything that I've read about sleep temples, what would happen is you would go to a temple 
and you would sleep in this temple. They would have like incenses burning. You would take a, a bath to, to ritually cleanse yourself and you would go to sleep and then you would dream. Um, it's very common when you sleep in a strange place that you have very vivid dreams. And so the next morning you would explain your dreams to a priest and they would kind of interpret them. Um, my name, Daniel, Daniel was actually a dream interpreter in the Bible. Um, that was one of his roles, I guess. And um, it's, it, it wasn't like these priests were sitting over you and, and suggesting things to you mm -hmm. in your sleep. It wasn't a hypnotic sleep. And, of course, there's this whole idea that hypnosis is sleep that still persists today, but mm -hmm. it, it's not. Um, but, I mean, looking at these these ancient claims, I think most of them are false. Um, there there are two that, that I'm kind of a little uncertain about. Um, and that's, and I didn't mention these in the Reddit post because I'm not absolutely sure. But... Um, Ibn Sina, he was a um, an Arabic um, physician about a thousand years ago. He's known in the West as Avicenna, and he wrote this massive book of medicine, um, which you know it's it's like the Gray's Anatomy of a thousand years ago, the, the book, not the TV show. Um, but he, I mean, and of course, it's all wrong. Um, based on our not our modern knowledge of, of medicine he's got leeches and bloodletting and the four humors and all that but he did understand the placebo effect a thousand years ago and i haven't found any mention of of hypnosis but he wrote so much i can't mm -hmm. read it all and and be absolutely sure that i have read it all that you know he mentioned it or not mm -hmm. and the um the other thing that I think might be real hypnosis is the Babylonians. Um, if you, I mean, the Babylonians actually had a lot of knowledge, like far beyond their time, if you look at other civilizations. Um, but they, they had a lot of medical knowledge. And they had this idea that if the medical knowledge was not working, then the person was cursed. And they would treat that curse with an exorcism. And I feel like this might be a deliberate attempt to influence somebody else's mind. Hmm. Now, of course, it's not the way that we look at it today. But if you look at a curse as a mental illness, they were performing a ritual designed to eliminate this problem mm -hmm. in the other person's thinking. So you might call that hypnosis. Well what we're finding really is examples of the power of suggestion. So some people hear the word placebo, and they think that a placebo is basically useless, that it doesn't do anything, but that's not actually the case. It might not do anything physically or biochemically, but it has an effect on the mind, which is the power of suggestion. Um, I, I One of the more interesting definitions of hypnosis I've heard, I, I forgot who said this, but um, the definition is that uh, hypnosis is a non-deceptive mega placebo. And to break it down a bit, um, you know, a placebo generally um, is, uh, it masquerades as a real medication, um, and you believe it's real medication, that's why it works. Whereas with hypnosis, we don't pretend, at least I don't pretend, it's anything other than my words 
affecting the way that you feel or the way that you think or the way that you imagine. So that's the non-deceptive part and the make it placebo part is that because I'm using words, suggestion can be drawn out with many, many words over the length of an entire session, which covers all the details, as opposed to a placebo, which only suggests this will help you or this will alleviate your pain. Right. And there's there's actually been a, a little bit of research into placebos recently, and they're kind of moving back toward hypnosis. <laughs> they have found that placebos work um, when the person knows that they're a placebo. Mm-hmm. And so they'll have the doctor say, well, I can't really give you any medicine for this, but I'm going to give you a placebo and the person still gets better. Mm-hmm. And um, the other thing they're finding is that certain people are not susceptible to placebos. Like certain people are highly susceptible and then others not so much. Hmm. So you're kind of getting into that issue with susceptibility to hypnosis. Mm -hmm. Yep. One other interesting thing, which I don't know whether this counts as under the category of placebos, but different colors of pills have different effects, even if the actual medication is the same. So for example, um, painkillers that are colored white have a stronger effect than painkillers that have any other color. Interestingly, hypnotists uniquely are sort of studying how to be more effective at suggestion, how to use suggestions to exert a greater influence. Um, I think it was Deepak Chopra, whatever you think of him, you know, in his writings, he has said that we should study placebos more closely because they do exert an effect and they exert um, uh, more of an effect when used in specific ways. So let's maximize the potential of placebos. Yeah, yeah. My, my next question is uh, the second era that you describe starts with Mesmer in 1774, and it ends with Freud around the time of World War I. And this is when hypnosis started to be induced intentionally, even though the why it works explanations from this time were still rather shaky. Can you tell me more about this era, its defining characteristics, myths you discovered, and so on? Okay, um, in addition to being interested in the the history of hypnosis, um, I'm also really interested in the history of mental illness. Um, And it it changes so much. Uh, You go back to the 70s in Elman's book, for example, he's he's talking to a room full of doctors and he is describing a patient who throws up after every meal. And of course, today we would say bulimia, but this room full of doctors, nobody knows what it is. And that's because back in the 1970s, bulimia did not exist. Hmm. So like, if you look back at the history of mental illness, mental illnesses come and go. And, and also, people get it wrong a lot. And so I'm kind of bringing this up because back in Mesmer's time, women wore tight corsets. And, um, and of course, today we have corsets, but today's corsets... Their, their clothing. Back mm-hmm. then, it was something that would actually compress your internal organs. And so they had a lot of trouble breathing. They would faint a lot. And then it was also kind of incomprehensible to society at the time that women had sexual desire. And so these two factors, they sort of contributed to this idea that, um, that there was this mental illness called female hysteria that all women were susceptible to. And, um, and so what they would do is, you know, as a, a wealthy man of the time, you would, you know, your wife would be fainting and, and, and she would be showing the signs of female hysteria, which would be like 
interest in sex um, is actually one of the the symptoms of this disease. Um, so what you would do is you would you would call the doctor in to to do a house call, and he would massage your wife's genitals. And they had different methods for doing this. There's the the manual stimulation, the water, and they they invented the vibrator for this purpose as a, a treatment for um for female hysteria. I can so, see how um, it works. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it was effective, but you know, obviously, yeah. there's the problem of whether this well, was an illness to begin with. So even in the 1970s, I, I think it was up to the 1970s that homosexuality was defined in the DSM as a mental illness. But that's why the DSM keeps going through revisions. It's because right. um, someday there's going to be a DSM-8 and a DSM-20 if humanity survives that long. And yeah. it's going to correct the mistakes of the previous editions. So we have to see sort of psychiatric diagnoses as, um, you, know, not, um, you know, not as concrete as like a broken bone because right. the science is evolving and at this point in human history relatively in its infancy um but exactly uh, yeah so tell me more about the age of mesmer mesmer's first patients with his magnetism uh, so he had this woman he was treating for female hysteria and um and so he put a bunch of little bits of iron into a solution and had her drink it and then he moved this magnet around her body and he thought that he was stimulating different parts of her body with this magnetic fluid now realistically it was probably in her stomach and he was just deluding himself but she got better um she stopped showing these hysterical symptoms don't know what those symptoms were or if that was something concerning to begin with but regardless she got better now I, I start this era in 1774 and it's not just because of mesmer a lot of people don't know in this same year, there was a, um, a German exorcist named um, Johann Josef Gossner. Um, but Gossner, um, he had this approach where he would go and he would approach people who, um, you know, somebody would be like, I'm depressed. I guess at the time they would actually say, I'm feeling melancholy. And he would say, melancholy is actually caused by demons. And then he would wave his crucifix over them and he would say, if there is any part of this illness that is supernatural in origin, let it show itself now. And this was pretty much a hypnotic suggestion from an authority figure. I mean, almost the highest authority figure you could have. He was the representation of God. I mean, he was the um, representative, I should say. And so it was saying, basically, act like you're possessed. And so, of course, at this point, most of his subjects would start acting like they were possessed. And so he would then do a proper Catholic exorcism. And after that, whatever symptoms they came to him with, those symptoms would be gone. And so you might argue that he was one of the first hypnotists, if not the first hypnotist. Some people say he was the father of hypnosis. Hmm. But the Munich Academy of Science didn't like that there was an exorcist performing real exorcisms. This conflicts with scientific thought. Mm -hmm. And so they asked Mesmer to come in and show that he could do what Gosner was doing. And of course he could. Um, he was doing it in a different way. He was doing it with magnets. But he demonstrated the same sort of healing. And um, 
if you look at Catholic sources today, they're saying that Mesmer was just pretending that he had the same solution. Mm -hmm. But the Pope specifically told Gossner to stop practicing. So I think at the time, Catholics were convinced. Hmm. So there's a little bit of revisionist history there. Um, but anyway, Mesmer, you know, built his career out of this. And um, I think eventually Austria had enough of him. And they said, get out of our country. And he went to France next. And the king of France, he also had enough of Mesmer. Um, and so he had this commission formed to go and take a look at Mesmer and his students and see what they were doing. Uh, and so he picked out a whole bunch of the, um, the top scientists of the time. He had the inventor of the guillotine, um, but this commission was led by Benjamin Franklin. Uh, so Benjamin Franklin came in and they called it the, the Franklin Commission. And they looked at Mesmer and what Mesmer was doing. And they, they actually did some experiments I think they did the first blind experiment in history. And this was, this was actually a literal blind experiment because they had this boy who could sense magnetism and they blindfolded him. And Mesmer or one of his students had magnetized this tree and they said to the boy, see if you can feel where this tree is. And the boy was blindfolded and uh, he was feeling around, he couldn't feel the tree. And they said eventually, you know, it's off to the left I just gestured to the right. But um, so the boy would turn in that direction and he was, he was feeling in that direction. And, um, and, and, you know, he went off in that direction. I can feel it now. I feel it. It's getting stronger. I'm getting closer to it. And he was actually walking in the wrong direction. The tree was in a different direction entirely. And so, um, so Franklin and the, the Franklin commission wrote to the King of France saying, if there is anything to this, it exists entirely in the subject's mind. Hmm. which of course is true. And um, that was kind of the end of Mesmer hmm. because he was selling this as magnetic fluid flowing around the body. And of course that wasn't what it was. And mm -hmm. so he, his career ended there and he kind of retired in disgrace. Um, but people kept practicing mesmerism. Um, by this point, I think it was called mesmerism. Before mm -hmm. that he was, he was trying to sell it as animal magnetism and it became very popular. It was it was this massive fad. I am told, I haven't actually verified this, that there was a point in in history where for several consecutive years, all the books published in France were about mesmerism. Hmm. So um, it, it was very popular. Um, one of the people who experimented with it in this period was um, the the Marquis de Poissegur. And... Um, he, he hypnotized a peasant uh, by the name of Victor. And this was, this was a treatment for some sort of illness that Victor had. And, um, and Victor didn't know how a person in hypnosis was supposed to respond. And so he responded like a person who was sleepwalking. Hmm. And this was, this was completely unique at this point. When Mesmer mesmerized people they would have hysterical fits and then when gossner um did his exorcisms of course they were behaving like they were possessed by demons and it wasn't until the the marquee that we got this this sleepwalking sort of it's what we know today as hypnosis is the, right. the person's 
Well, and um, the word somnambulism literally means sleepwalking, and it's right. used um, to describe a deep state of hypnosis. And the Marquis is the one that came up with that term um, because of this this one particular case. Hmm. So I think that's interesting in that the physician got hysteria, the exorcism got possession, and the Marquis, well, he didn't know how to respond, so hmm. sleepwalking. Hmm. Um, and it's it's very much how you approach somebody with hypnosis well, is that, that what I results th you get. Yes, well, <laughs> I, I, I think that's where the theory, the non-state theory, that hypnosis is social role-playing comes from, in that expectation very much determines the client's experience. Um, I, I would say that the one thing that ties um, all of these examples together um, is the use of suggestion. Right. Um, I've, I've kind of sort of uh, just talked about hypnosis as a subset of suggestion in that it's the use of verbal suggestion as opposed to placebos or magnets or anything else like that. But I, I, if we're looking for a definition to, um, you know, to filter out what is and isn't hypnosis, it's the use of suggestion, usually verbal suggestion, to influence or affect someone else. Right, right. And I, I think it's interesting that it's not always verbal. And, and it's enough that if you're hypnotized by somebody who's dressed as an exorcist, that is a suggestion. And also going back to the dancing plague of 1518, um, just being in the proximity of the shrine dedicated to the patron saint of dancing. That's also a suggestion. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to be aware it's not just your words. Mm -hmm. I I'm sure you've come across this book, um, and I'm going to mangle the title, but I'm going to get it close enough that, that you can probably tell me what the correct title is. It's uh, Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, or Extraordinary Delusions and the Madness oh, of Crowds. Something. I yeah, I'm vaguely familiar with that, but I can't tell you the correct title. But, yeah. but the, 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 that book talks about how um, when you get people together in a group, like, for example, at, at a sports game, that there is sort of the effect that everyone is influencing everyone else. And there's sort of, I mean, on Reddit, we talk about the hive mind. But, you know, in, in person, even more so, it's, it's almost like people's individuality um, gets subsumed into part of the bigger group. And they'll do things they wouldn't otherwise do, or they'll, you know, act in ways they wouldn't normally act. As another example of uh, well, let's talk about what you've called the golden age of hypnosis, um, which uh, starts from around World War One to the 1970s. Can you talk about how you chose these dates, which major figures were influential, uh, how this era departs from previous eras, and so on? Okay, so to go back a little bit further, um, there was, well, uh, all right, mesmerism was falling out of, of, of practice. And um, certain people were noticing that it was something useful. And there was a, a French man named Etienne de Cuvier, and he, um, he came up with this idea of calling it hypnotism. Um, I'm not sure exactly what he called it in France, but it was something similar to that. James Braid was an English surgeon who, who brought this idea of calling it hypnotism over here. And he said, now we can, we can treat it as something respectable because we've left behind all of this magnetism nonsense and so um it started to became it started to be taken seriously and there were two schools in france the the nancy school and the salpit salpitriere school 
and the the latter school was um was led by a man named um, Jean-Martin Charcot. And one of his students, actually a lot of his students were famous. Like one of them was Tourette, from whom we get Tourette's. Um, but one of Charcot's students who came to him to study neurology was Sigmund Freud. And he became so fascinated with hypnosis that he changed from studying neurology to studying psychology. But he wasn't a very good hypnotist. Charcot, um, I, I think that the Nancy school actually had it better. They, they were hypnotizing everybody. Charcot had this idea that hypnosis only worked on hysterical patients. Hmm. And so he didn't teach Freud very well how to hypnotize people. And Freud was dissatisfied with how hypnosis was working and came up with psychoanalysis, which of course changed all of psychology. Um, so, so at the end of this previous era, hypnosis was falling out of fashion. And then we come into World War I, which I say is the beginning of the Golden Age. And, um, and that's because all of our, our soldiers were coming back from the war with um, what they called at the time shell shock. And now we know it is post-traumatic stress disorder. But this was something that they had never seen before. And all of a sudden it was everywhere. And so the neurologists were working on it, the, the psychiatrists were working on it, and there were so many cases that the hypnotists got pulled in and started working on this. And so I think that was a catalyst getting this to be taken seriously again. And so in this, this previous era, we had case studies. In, in this, what I call the golden age of hypnosis, we started having large scale studies and the first person to do that was Clark Hull. Um, he published a book in 1933. I can't remember the title off the top of my head, but it was a book of basically what he had discovered in his studies of hypnosis. And you'll see more and more research done through the remainder of the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. So we're starting in World War II to see hypnosis used in warfare. And we don't have the actual stories of how it happened. So we're not mm -hmm. quite sure on how effective it really was. Probably a lot of it is classified. Right. Yeah. Um, but after the war, the CIA was formed. Mm -hmm. And the CIA was fascinated with this idea of hypnosis. And so they started four different programs um, in the CIA to, to expand on this. Uh, the first one was Bluebird, and I think this was actually slightly before the CIA. Um, and Bluebird, they basically just had trained teams of hypnotists that they could use in various operations. And um, we don't have much information about that. But after Bluebird, they, they had Artichoke. And uh, Project Artichoke, they started doing research into what hypnosis could actually do. And this is going to sound like a conspiracy theory, but you can actually submit a Freedom of Information Act request, and, and you can even do this as a Canadian. You don't have to be a citizen, um, and the U.S. government will send you the documents. They've been declassified, mm. and um, they, they have this massive collection, and it's terribly boring. There's tens of thousands of documents, and most of it is financial stuff, budgets, and expenditures. But if you go through enough of it, you will find these documents. Um, for the artichoke program, they were the the main researcher was Morse Allen, 
and he was gradually learning hypnosis as this project went on. And he would do these little ex experiments with um, his secretaries, who were these teenage girls. I think they were around 19. And he would hypnotize them. And he had one fire an unloaded gun at another secretary. She was very afraid of guns, but in hypnosis, she fired this unloaded gun. Hmm. And there's some question even today, did she do it because hypnosis made her do it or did she do it because she knew that it was an experiment and nobody would really be hurt? Hmm. So that ethical question is still being debated. And of course, we can never actually do this with a loaded gun, yep. which would settle it because, hmm. you know, you're going to have a body in the lab. Um, but after Artichoke, actually at the same time as Artichoke, this man named Sidney Gottlieb, uh, working for the CIA, started MKUltra, um, which was the main uh, main research program. It wasn't just hypnosis. The CIA at the time wanted to do research on all forms of mind control. They wanted to find a truth serum. They wanted to be able to make Manchurian candidates that they could send into a country and commit an assassination without remembering it. And um, MKUltra had, I think, 157 subprojects. I might be getting that number wrong, but eight of them were hypnosis and others. Uh, it was terribly unethical stuff. They would, mm -hmm. they would get people off the street and they, they would actually get people who were going to brothels. And, you know, because then after they were released, they would never say, well, this is what I was doing. Um, and then they would dose these people with LSD and stuff like that. Electroshock therapy with all these different projects, not just the hypnosis projects, they pretty much found nothing whatsoever. <laughs> no truth serum, no mind control serum, nothing like that. Mm -hmm. And um, eventually uh, the CIA director of the time um, in 1964, Richard Helms, uh, he went to Gottlieb and he said, you know, he, he didn't know all this was happening. And it finally came to his attention. He said, you have to cut this out. Um, we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna be watching what you do from here on, just cut it back. And so Gottlieb trimmed it down to his only, the eight projects that he thought would show promise. Hmm. And he trimmed out hypnosis entirely. He thought it was, I mean, they were getting results, but the results were so unpredictable. They, they mm -hmm. never solved the suggestibility problem. And right. so they just discarded it completely. So, so let's talk about the current modern age of hypnosis that started in the 1970s. And during this time, um, we're all familiar with all the social changes that have occurred during this time and advances right. in science. So, for example, what we're doing right now, which is to be in two different countries, talking in real time and then recording it and then uploading it for literally the whole world to view, this was not possible before. Um, and in, now it's so natural. I, 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 it's, it's I forgot just, we were doing it. It's the most normal <laughs> thing in the world. Yeah. And uh, so... In your opinion, what defines the current era? Um, what do you think is going to cause it to end? Um, or when do you think it's going to end? And which figures, if you were to canonize a, a few figures from who are still alive, um, who do you think will be remembered? Okay, so the 1970s, that's kind of vague as the end of an era. And I'm not exactly sure you know, when the golden age should end. But um, in the 1970s, the, the Watergate scandal happened. I don't know how, how much people in other countries are familiar with this, but 
the president of the United States was involved in this big scandal. And that pretty much put this idea in everyone's heads that um, the government can be corrupt. And so they looked and they, they started finding out that the CIA was doing all these things. And that's why we have these documents today. And so like the CIA ended what they were doing in 1973. And there are conspiracy theories that they're still doing it, but the CIA is much more transparent now than they were back then. Um, but at, the, at that time in 1973, the CIA pulled all their money out of the hypnosis scene um, because up until that point, they were funding all these these different uh, experiments around the country, around the world even, like um, Martin T. Orne was one of their big guys. He was involved in several of their sub-projects. And um, he was, um, th there's a famous experiment back in 1939, they did this experiment where um, Lloyd Rowland was the, the guy doing this. He, um, he would have people grab at a, uh, an agitated rattlesnake or throw acid in another person's face. Now there were panes of invisible glass. It's this non-reflective glass that can't be seen. And so everyone was safe the whole time, but he was able to hypnotize people and get them to do these things. And Martin T. Orn replicated this, but he added a thing. He, he said, there's one group that's hypnotized, one group that's not hypnotized. And he added a third group. He said, pretend to be hypnotized. And this third group that was pretending was more susceptible than the ones that were actually hypnotized. Hmm. So a part of it might be, um, that compliance experiments, uh, the Milgram experiment. Yeah. I think most people know about that, where they people were were encouraged by the researchers to think to do what they thought was giving a lethal dose of electricity to another person. One alternative hypothesis for why people do things during hypnosis that they wouldn't do outside hypnosis is because they have a plausible uh, excuse. Um, it's sort of like some people after they drink a couple of beers. Um, it might not be enough to make them completely inebriated, but all of a sudden they're saying things. They feel free to say things they wouldn't normally say or to do things that they wouldn't normally do because now they can blame the alcohol. I think some people similarly blame hypnosis when right. they do things in an uninhibited fashion during hypnosis. Yeah, and it, when you're being told to do something, it's easy to say, well, that wasn't me. That was what I was told to do. Mm -hmm. And that might be a part of it. If, if you go to PubMed and, and you type in hypnosis for irritable bowel syndrome or you type in hypnosis for anxiety, um, usually for most of the common issues, there will be a few hundred or at least a few dozen papers that pop up. Now, all, not all of them um, are, uh, you know, in, I guess, mainstream publications. Right. And also... Um, um, not all of them show that hypnosis is effective, but right. once in a while you'll you'll see an article, like for example, in a dermatology uh, journal about the use of hypnosis for I I don't know managing uh, psoriasis, and then they'll at least have tried to use hypnosis to manage psoriasis, um, and then the results will be reported. So that there is modern research going on, some of which are in mainstream. Um, some of which ends up in right. mainstream medical 
journals. Right. We could do a whole episode about the challenges of studying hypnosis as a science. But, um, you know, I've come to see it more. I actually have a video about this that I posted only a couple of days ago. I don't know whether you've seen it, but um, I have not. It's about how, um, in my opinion, hypnosis is more of an art than a science. Um, I don't really want to be seeing my individual clients as members of a category. Um, I do want to treat them as individuals, and I see it as I am using poetic techniques, uh, speech, um, even rhetorical techniques, um, in order to affect someone else's subjective experience. And because I'm working with individuals and because I'm working with subjectivity, that's why I'm saying it's more of an art than a science. And I, I think that makes it hard to kind of study hypnosis as a homogeneous practice because it's hard to standardize when different practitioners come from different places. Because I, I don't use scripts. Um, right. I, in my opinion, once you start using scripts, it's second or third tier hypnosis. Right. But you have to use scripts for a scientific study. Um, but in clinical yeah. practice, you can actually talk with individuals. You can take into account things they've said to you. You can um, transform what they've said to you into some kind of reframe or some kind of, um, uh, I forgot the term, iso, isomorphic metaphor, um, and then deliver it just to that client. So th- th- that that's why I, I've been saying that I see myself more as an artist of people's perceptions um, than a scientist. I've spoken to a lot of these hypnotherapists or consulting hypnotists, and a lot of them don't really know what they're doing. And a lot of the people... You know, I, of course, I'm the moderator over at the hypnosis subreddit and people come in all the time. They're saying, can I fix this problem with hypnosis? And a lot of the time I have to tell them, yes, you can, but you probably shouldn't because you're probably going to see somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and they're going to charge you $300 and you're going to want your money back and they won't give it to you. And um, and now that I know you exist, I'm actually mm-hmm. going to be recommending you. Thank you. Because you, you don't have to, but I'm happy to see people online. Um, and I actually do have a money back refund policy. I, I don't know what. And that's that, part of why it's... I would recommend you is well, because so many hypnotists don't do that, and I think it's so important. Well, I mean, the, the industry uh, perspective um, is that no other professional will give refunds. But like we talked about earlier, other professionals have to go through through a professional school. They had to have been trained in critical thinking. They also take their career seriously, and they um, just won't, you know, they're much less likely to BS their clients than a hypnotherapist who took a weekend certification. So I also think it's very important for the hypnotherapist. Um, Like, for example, if something doesn't work for the average hypnotherapist, I went to see one for two sessions and it wasn't working for me. But what do I do? Mm hmm. Yep. I, I didn't tell her that it wasn't working for me. I just said, I don't want to do sessions anymore. Yep. If it were you, I would come to you and I would say, this isn't working for me. And, and then we talk. And, then we and talk you would and... learn from the experience. Yep. You would know that it wasn't working for me. Exactly. And most people and... don't know that. So much, much my first few years of practice and some months in my first year, I had a refund rate of 30%. Um, the past 12 months, I think it's one point something percent. So that shows you the difference between someone who's new and someone who's more experienced. But much of my first few years was filtering everything I had learned and read about through the refund policy to see what actually survives uh, customer feedback or a customer um, satisfaction. 
And it, you know, much of the way that I practice, I would say is because of the refund policy, because now I have to make fair predictions about what I think a client will experience or whether I think I can help a client. You know, now I, you know, I can't BS people. Um, I mean, right. I tend not to anyway, but, um, you know, this way it's loud and clear that I can't and I won't BS people. It's not being taken seriously. And I feel like it's not being taken seriously in part because, it's being practiced by people who don't care enough to, to learn what to do. Yep. And it's much of the mysticism around hypnosis. So we're kind of coming full circle to what um, or how this conversation started. So much yeah. of the mysticism um, sort of supports the livelihood of hypnotherapists who don't know what they're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there are a few... Um, researchers that are still in this modern era sort of kind of trying to figure out what this what this is all about and um irving kirsch is i think one of the the main ones he he also studies placebo um and then there's um zoltan dinas i think is how you pronounce his name uh he has come up with this cold control theory and um and then there's anthony jackwin and kev sheldrake who came up with the automatic imagination model so to go back to your original question that I digressed so far from, I think these are the people who who are, are kind of defining research in this era, at least, who will be remembered going forward. Awesome. Thank you. Um, so those are the eras, the four eras of the history of hypnosis as you define them. And I think it's interesting to note that on this long timeline, it's only in the last hundred years or so that the concept of the unconscious mind was introduced by Sigmund Freud. And I've often said that the concept of the unconscious is not necessary for the understanding or the practice of hypnosis. Um, and it seems like this long history of hypnosis or the use of verbal suggestion to affect how people feel, um, it, it seems to validate the idea that the, the concept of the unconscious is not strictly necessary for the practice or understanding of hypnosis. And in that way, I contradict a lot of my peers or colleagues who define hypnosis as, for example, talking to the unconscious mind, or they define hypnosis as... Um, uh, affecting unconscious processes or whatever else it might be. So do you agree? And yes. uh, what do you think? Yeah. Um, so, and, and part of it is that if we look at the unconscious mind, well, this isn't a real thing. I mean, we tend to think this is me. And then back here is this other person who sees everything that I do and makes other decisions sort of contrary to what I am trying to do. And, and that doesn't exist. There is no one part that's, that's also living inside our head. Mm -hmm. um, in, instead, we have like a bunch of unconscious processes, like, mm -hmm. you know, our breathing rate, our heart rate, uh, emotions, um, instinctive. Um, if you, you look at uh, Daniel Kahneman, I believe is his name. Uh, he wrote this book, Thinking Fast and Slow about how you'll you'll have these instinctive thoughts that kind of come in quickly and they're they're very emotional but sometimes you have to kind of learn to trust them other times they're going to completely lead you astray but you can't really think of these as one entity mm -hmm. and um <clears throat> so yeah i th i think 
really we can do away with this idea of the unconscious mind. But at the same time, it has kind of been back in history, even if it wasn't called the unconscious mind until Freud. Um, like, if, for example, uh, if you look at the ancient Egyptians, they had this this idea that a human being had nine souls. And, um, and so these nine souls, they would say the physical body is one soul, and the way you present yourself to other people is another soul. And so they have different souls that might together sort of make up what Freud described as the unconscious mind. And you'll see this in other cultures as well. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. and I, I should say, um, as a teenager, I did a report on this. And this, this woman who wrote this book, Walking Like an Egyptian, uh, Ramona Louise Wheeler, sent me her book for free. And she said, please review it. Uh, I'm just giving you this in exchange for a free review. And I never reviewed her book. So I feel so guilty about that. That's part of why I'm bringing this up now. That's where this idea of the nine Egyptian souls came from. I, I want to talk about some common myths about hypnosis. Um, and uh, if you happen to know the origin of this myth, if you could trace it back to the earliest time in history that it was believed, then please let me know. And if, if you don't happen to know the origin off the top of your head, no worries, okay. because I can only guess. Um, the first one is uh, that hypnosis is sleep or that someone who's hypnotized is asleep. Where does that come from? I believe that comes from the, the Marquis hypnotizing uh, Victor. And he behaved like somebody who was sleepwalking. And I think it kind of grew out of that. Again, it's, it's sort of the telephone game where somnambulism, right? And people already knew what somnambulism meant. And they kind of built on that idea. This is the same thing. And I mentioned Clark Hull is the first person to do this massive study of what hypnosis was. He was the one that, that kind of put the final nails in the coffin for that one. It said hypnosis is absolutely not sleep. Hmm. And, and so, then, of course, once uh, the word hypnotism was used, then right. because it goes back to the Greek word for sleep, um, that right. myth basically just got solidified after that point. Right. And it, yeah, it kind of created this feedback loop where it reinforced it, which led to the yep. word being used more. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but I, I will say that for instant inductions during that short window where the person's critical faculties are suspended and you have a short time to fire in a suggestion, the word sleep does communicate a lot um, in that one word. It basically means with your eyes closed, go limp, um, relax as much as you can, and go into your inner world and feel really good. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine putting all those words in that very tiny window that opens up during or after an instant induction. How about the myth that hypnosis is mind control? Do you, I mean, obviously we talked about the CIA, MKUltra, and so on. Does it predate that? Yes, yes. Um, there is a, uh, a, a French book from the 19th century by, um, I, I talked about the Nancy school briefly. That school, one of the main figures in it was uh, Hippolyte Bernheim. Bernheim. Um, and he wrote this book, and of course it's in French, but you can see that he, in this early, very early stage, this was the second era that I was talking about, he was, he was talking in this point about um, there was a case where he thought that this had happened. And if you go back to uh, the Franklin Commission, looking at Mesmer, 
they said, we're not absolutely sure, but we think that Mesmer and his students might be abusing these women who come to him in a very vulnerable state. Mm-hmm. And um, there's there's also a German book that I think compiles uh, something like 22 cases where throughout history, various things happened and they think that, and of course, this is all questionable. Um, <laughs> what about the the myth that hypnosis necessarily involves deceit or trickery that hypnotists kind of trick people into believing things or being hypnotized as opposed to um, doing something that's transparent and out in the open. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure about an exact origin for this, but I think it it did come from that same sort of era um, with Svengali and this, this conception that, you know, people were going around hypnotizing other people against their will. Hmm. I think there there was a, a strong mythology, a strong legend, I guess, about it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of grew out of that. Okay. What about the idea that you can get stuck in hypnosis? So that's, um, I don't know, have you read Elman's book? I have, yes, a few times. So that's, that's one of the things that he talked about, is that um, during stage performances, they would have these these subjects who would just enjoy hypnosis so much that they didn't want to come out of it and mm-hmm. and there was actually a case um in quebec about five years ago oh it was here in canada oh really yep okay it was a high school right yeah and the yeah. guy brought in his in his mentor and the mentor unhypnotized everybody okay i did not know that was in canada yep. but yeah but yeah, he, he of course he was doing this this performance for the high school, and yeah, he he put all these people under and couldn't get them back out, mm-hmm. and and I think that's why is that that it's um, and of course Elman tells you how to deal with mm-hmm. this situation when you come across it. Yep. But um, yeah, I I would agree with your assessment that when people are apparently stuck in hypnosis, it's not that they can't come out; it's that they won't come out, and right. usually because they just feel so good. Right. Um, the, the the final uh, myth that, um, if you happen to, to be able to trace it back, um, I, I guess we, we've talked about the link between religion and hypnosis, but there is kind of a myth that hypnosis kind of gives you superhuman or supernatural powers, that it connects you with uh, past lives and things like that. Do you know where the link between the supernatural and hypnosis comes from? Um, you can date this right back to Mesmer himself, because even though he, he was approached by the Munich Academy of Sciences to give a scientific explanation for what Gossner was doing, he took this magnetism and he turned it into a cult. People would come to him for healing and he would be coming out in these robes with this magnetic staff and there would be like magnetic tubs that people were supposed to sit in. And it was it was very much like a religious experience. Hmm. And so I think that's that's pretty much where that came from. And of course, it was a persistent idea for for most of this era. Um, there's a, a French book, um, La Orla, and uh, it, it's the it's an invisible vampire who comes and hypnotizes the the narrator it's it's a it's a great book but you know it's he he goes and he talks to a hypnotist at some point during the book and i think that his experience with hypnotism is what of course gave him this idea of an invisible vampire hmm. so i mean it's kind of ingrained in the the whole society of the time mm-hmm. 
well, that this was amazing. This was magic. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are other professions that uh, sort of have, you know, a, a mythology around them or a popular depiction that's other. I mean, even like television lawyers or television doctors um, seem to have almost amazing powers of deduction that real right. life lawyers and doctors would have to work for hours to achieve. Of course, yeah. In your research or in your readings um, or in your own personal experience, What's the weirdest or coolest hypnosis story or fact that you have discovered? Okay, so I, I'm, I'm biased, of course, because this is something that I personally experienced. So, of course, it's the coolest to me. But um, I, I said I was a recreational hypnotist. And uh, what I like to do was give people hallucinations. Now, I know you know about all these these depth scales, these suggestibility scales, and they always put hypnosis, uh, they always put hallucination down at the very bottom. Mm-hmm. This is the hardest thing to achieve. And, um, and so like as a recreational hypnotist specializing in this, I was trying to do this with every single subject. Um, so I, I, I was talking to this young woman one time and she said, no hypnotist has ever been able to give me a hallucination. And so I had to try that. And um, what I did was, and I feel like most hypnotists, when they when they try to make the, the subject hallucinate, they say, you see something here in the room with you. Instead of doing that, I had her see a pop-up window come up on her screen. And it was an advertisement for dog shampoo. And she would be unable to close this. And like, you know, when she went up to close it, mm-hmm. the, the window would move so that she wouldn't actually be clicking on things. And so she was very frustrated. She couldn't get this window to close. Yep. And and so, like, of course, like five minutes after she told me that she's never had a hallucination, I had given her a hallucination. And then I thought, well, how far can I take this? So she had a mirror. She was sitting in her bedroom, and she had this full-length mirror she used for dressing. And I said, um, in that mirror, you're going to see your girlfriend. And she she looked over, and she said, she's there. She 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 flickered in, and then it was back to me. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So it works on a screen, but it doesn't work in a mirror. Hmm. I said, okay, your mirror is a TV screen and you're going to see your girlfriend. And she looked back at the mirror and she saw her girlfriend completely clear. Now she said the TV screen itself was flickering. Like she, Hmm. she was having a little trouble perceiving her mirror as Mm -hmm. a screen, but the image in it, she had no trouble at all hallucinating that. Hmm. And then I, um, she wore glasses so I said, your glasses are VR goggles, and you will now see your girlfriend in the room with you. And she was able to look around the room and see her girlfriend as if she were physically present. <laughs> and then I tried, I went a little bit further. I said, okay, you're, now your glasses are magic, and, and they allow you to see things that are invisible. Your girlfriend is there, but she's invisible. And she was able to see her again, and she said it was just about as clear as the VR goggle version. Awesome. So I feel like hallucination it's not the hardest thing. You just need to set the expectation that it can happen to you. Mm-hmm. And that's why people have had so much trouble with it historically, is that they've never set the expectation. And we all think nobody can appear in the room with me. That's magic. Mm-hmm. But they have this expectation. Things can appear on my screen. Mm-hmm. So you just change the concept a little bit, change the context, and it becomes easy. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so, a- it's a perfect example, I think, of how what you're doing, recreational hypnosis is a little bit different from hypnotherapy, but how it's um, 
more of an art than a science. Because right. what you did, you can't read about in a book anywhere, as far, as far as I know, but you had to improvise on the spot based on principles, based on a little bit of intuition and guesswork, and based, you know, based on ex um, experimentation with the person who's in front of you. It's not something that is linear, where you can do something step by step. You do have to have your eyes open, you do have to be thinking and listening as you work with the person to co-create an experience inside the subject or the client's mind. Yeah, and, and it, there's a lot of variation in minds. Um, I worked with a different woman who would have spontaneous hallucinations, and I'm to this day not clear on what happens, why she had spontaneous hallucinations. Hmm. But she had no objections whatsoever. I could have her see things appear in the room with her. And, and she already had this experience that she would have these spontaneous hallucinations, so it was the easiest thing in the world. So I think there's a lot of variation. Um, and some, some subjects I would work with them, they couldn't do visual hallucinations, but they could do auditory, they could do tactile. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's all about expectation and, and whether their mind is set up correctly for it. Awesome. Professional hypnotists often complain that many people don't take us seriously. Um, and um, obviously, hypnosis has had a long history predating the modern hypnosis office. So do you think that this problem of not being taken seriously is better or worse in modern times? And what do you think would have to change or happen before this practice gains mainstream acceptance? I, I usually have a pretty good memory for the hypnosis books I've read. I cannot remember where I got this, but I read this one book where the the writer was trying to blame this on stage hypnosis and i feel like that's completely off base mm -hmm. like if you you go and see a stage hypnotist they they get people up there and they get immediate results mm -hmm. and i feel like that was the the, the great thing about elman is that it was so results focused and mm -hmm. that's because he started out as a stage hypnotist so i don't feel like I mean, they were saying that because it's entertainment, it's all a joke. Um, I feel like the stage hypnotists have the right idea. And I would like to see more of this feedback mm -hmm. getting back to the hypnotist. Yep. I actually think it's the hypnotherapists or consulting hypnotists. I mean, not you, obviously, because you have this refund policy. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of them do not have any feedback from the clients as to whether it's working. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I feel like that's a big contribution to it that when you go yes. and see a professional hypnotist, it often is not working. Right, right. Well, I, I talked about how the art of hypnotherapy is practicing with your eyes wide open, watching the client as you speak and having kind of a feedback loop between yourself and the client. But it's not just when the client's in front of you. It's also right. when the client is living their life and they're paying you not to just have, well, as a hypnotherapist, it's different for, for recreational hypnosis or stage hypnosis. The main distinction I would say is for recreational and stage hypnosis, it's about accepting bizarre ideas temporarily. Whereas for hypnotherapy, it's about accepting completely normal healthy ideas for the rest of your life. Right. Um, but having made that distinction, um, what I care about more than the client's experience inside my office is their experience outside my office. And, you know, people don't just want to stop smoking for a week or a month. They want to stop smoking for the rest of their life. So having a policy where clients are incentivized to come back and give you feedback if something isn't working 
th- that that is invaluable. <laughs> it's different skill sets, but I, I I do agree with your assessment that many stage hypnotists who, if they fail, they fail in public, um, are right. better hypnotists than consulting hypnotists or hypnotherapists who, when they fail, they fail in private. Um, they might not even know it. Yes, yes. <laughs> so my last question is kind of a fun one. Um, the question is, where do you see hypnosis going in the future? So if there is a future era in the history of hypnosis, um, I'll give you some ideas of questions for prompt or, or, or um, as prompts. Um, so which popular ideas do you think will be obsolete, which will survive the time, the, the test of time, which will become more popular? Um, and then we'll talk about whether you think apps or AI um, will ever replace human hypnotists. But, you know, let's talk about the general landscape going forward. Yeah, in the general landscape. Um, actually, I think that the apps or AI might be a good starting point because okay. I think that that will happen. I think within the next 10 years, we're going to have hypnosis apps and AI start to replace consulting hypnotists. And it's not going to be a complete thing, of course, because, you know, of course, you can go to an app and it can learn the process of, of you know, stopping smoking or um, for guiding someone through weight loss. These are very common problems and there's a lot of data to go through and to build something. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm sure you get every once in a while, someone comes to you with a very, very strange problem mm-hmm. that maybe no hypnotist has ever seen before. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, consulting hypnotists will continue to exist, I think. Yep. But I think that as apps and AI become more popular, a lot of consulting hypnotists are going to to leave the field yep. because all they know is you know the scripts for weight loss yep. and the scripts for smoking cessation, yep. and a machine can do that better. And I, I agree with that assessment because right now, recordings can do a lot better than a lot of people practicing when they're just reading off of scripts. So a dumb recording, like, you know, not intelligent software, but just a straightforward recording can do better than many people charging $150 an hour. So once we add in AI, once we add in machine learning so that the algorithms or the um, programs just get better and better based on ongoing feedback, then I, um, you know, as results focused as I am and as much much feedback as I want to get, I might be outcompeted by AI, which I, I have to admit, this is part of the reason why I'm starting to see my work more as an art than as a science, more as my understanding of my humanity being expressed to a person who's listening and, you know, with ongoing feedback, because I'm trying to make my practice or my work as future-proof as possible. So, you know, um, I, I think that people will accept AI hypnotists roughly around when they accept self-driving cars. And that might be about 10 years into the future, because it's a similar fear in that, you know, there's a, you know, honestly, I trust AI more than a lot of drivers on the road. Um, But a lot of people don't. A lot of people feel like a human driver is um, the only trustworthy driver. And I think a lot of people will also feel like they can't trust their minds to an AI driver or hypnotist. Um, But, yeah. I I actually feel like um, the AI hypnotists are going to come first because 
well, I mean, obviously I'm in my mid thirties. I can go out and I can drive a car and there is no reason for me not to. I mean, self-driving cars, that'll be nice, but it's a convenience. (laughs) Whereas therapy is not a convenience. And there are a lot of people, especially here in the States that can't afford it. I think it's something like 40% of, of the country Mm -hmm. can't afford you know, an emergency medical expense Mm -hmm. or, you know, something like as simple as therapy. Um, Most of the country does not have access to a therapist in their county. And with apps and AI, anybody anywhere in the world, you know, even Zimbabwe can download a therapist Mm -hmm. and and it doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, Mm -hmm. a lot of apps are selling for one dollar. So I, I feel like it's going to reach a lot of people for whom a actual professional consulting hypnotist is priced out of their range. Right. And I, I do think that um, there's a huge swath of the population that isn't served by practitioners like myself. I do admit my clientele skews affluent. Um, my rates are higher than average. I'm also located in the downtown core of a major city. Um, and also, I think just the the way that I present myself and advertise, I tend to get more of an educated clientele. Um, but m- there's a huge swath of the population that literally they hear my rates and you can hear their hearts drop because they want to work with me, but they can't afford even an hour of my time. So I... I think that there is room for for apps um, or for AI. In the hypnosis world, I also think that apps and AI can do better than a lot of consulting hypnotists. And it might end up being such that... Um, uh, although, actually, I might actually dispute the point that I just made. Because we sort of had a test run for... It's, you know, it's not like AI, but it's virtual hypnosis when the mm-hmm. shutdown happened. So here in Toronto, um, there was a mandatory shutdown of um, most businesses in the province. And my hypnosis office had to close. Um, so I uh, set up my private video conferencing server so I could um, you know, do a hypnosis in a way where it was also like when all the much publicized uh, flaws with Zoom were um, starting to come out. So I, I basically prepared myself to um, move to a virtual practice, and um, my bookings or my revenue uh, dropped by, I would say, about 80, 80 to ninety percent. So, um, you know, I, I'm the same person. I it's it's the same brain that's thinking about the case, the same mouth speaking the words. Um, but just the element of that they're not in the same room as me seems to cause people to diminish th- their perceived value of the service. Um, some people think that things that are online should just inherently be cheaper. Right. Um, so that test run might say that consulting hypnotists have a longer career than we might think because you and i are very technologically adept and we're probably early adopters of many different technologies so you know most people aren't most people are mainstream or they they tend to follow so um yeah it's, it's possible that I, I i could be working when i'm 80 years old and still have lots of people who want to see a hypnotist in person yeah and i i really feel like you will i feel like this is going to 
it's mostly just going to bring hypnosis to people who now can't afford it. Because, of course, poverty is associated with mental health problems. And a lot of the people who need this most are are priced out of the range. Yep. So I, I think this might not affect you. Yep. I mean, well, I mean, not to a large degree. I, 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 I only have so many hours in a week, of course. And because um, I'm doing almost all of the talking during a session, you know, I, I can't be working eight hour days. Um, Absolutely. Or, or even like six, you know, I, I can't even do six sessions in a day the way a psychologist or a psychotherapist might. So obviously, you know, as long as I fill my calendar in that way, then then I'm set. Um, but uh, if there's anyone who's listening to this who's thinking about starting an app, I will <laughs> invest in it and I will advise on it. I'm happy to be a member of the board. You know, one thing that people like about in-office sessions is, I guess this doesn't really happen with AI, but it happened with the teleconferencing calls that I try to do during COVID. Um, many people lack privacy in their own homes, surprisingly. So th- they literally can't um, find a space where they'll be uninterrupted for an hour and they'll have, you know, and they, a place where they also have like a chair like yours or a bed or a couch. Um, many people just aren't set up to have a quiet, um, dimly lit experience for a full hour uninterrupted in their own homes. So I think that is a place for hypnosis offices where brick and mortar probably will never die for any service, even if the service is popular online. Again, thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Welcome. It's Luke Chow from the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada, where we make hypnosis make sense. This has been episode eight of the Hypnosis Nerd podcast about the history of hypnosis. If you enjoy this content, please like, comment, and subscribe if you're on YouTube. And if you're listening on Spotify, iTunes, or Google Podcasts, you know how to subscribe. 